0: All right. If you have a Bible, we're going to continue with uh, Mark and turn to Mark chapter 15, which is where we're at. Mark chapter 15. And we're going to begin reading in verse 33. Read through the end of the chapter. And it says in Mark 15, 33, and when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land or the whole earth until the ninth hour, three hours. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of them which stood by, when they heard it, they said, well, behold, he calls for Elijah. And one ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink, saying, well, let alone, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Verse 37, it says, Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. And the veil of the temple was rent in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion which stood over against him saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost, he said, truly this man was the son of God. And there were also women looking on afar off, among whom was Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the less and of Joseph and of Salome who also when he was in Galilee followed him and ministered unto him and many other women which came up with him unto Jerusalem. And now when the even was come because it was the preparation that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea an honorable counselor which also waited for the kingdom of God came and went in boldly unto Pilate and craved the body of Jesus. And Pilate marveled if he were already dead. And calling unto him the centurion, he asked him whether he had been any while dead. And when he knew it of the centurion, he gave the body to Joseph. And he bought fine linen, took him down, wrapped him in the linen, and laid him in a sepulcher which was hewn out of a rock, and rolled a stone unto the door of the sepulcher. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, beheld where he was laid." You know, if you can just kind of get back in your mind the scene of the crucifixion, you know, I, I think putting myself in the shoes of the Roman soldiers and even particularly the centurion, you know, the whole thing, this whole crucifixion that they're involved with here. And they were involved in lots of crucifixions at the time. But this one would have had to seem a bit odd to them, I would think. So, you know, they were probably substituting one one prisoner for another. That was a custom that was done okay. But here's the thing, these guys are probably thinking Barabbas though, he is a known troublemaker. He is big time trouble. And this man Jesus that we're substituting him for, Pilate, our leader, our governor, has declared him innocent, saying I find no fault in him. And they had to be like, well, you know, I guess politics is politics. You know, that's what he's doing. It's a political thing. But they're nailing, here they are, they also have to be thinking, we're nailing this man who claims to be the king of the Jews. We're nailing him to a cross, yet, yet he is the most passive rebel that we have ever dealt with. And because most of them, I imagine, they didn't just lay down and take it. They were probably spitting, kicking, and fighting, and cursing. And he doesn't do any of that. You think, you put yourself in these shoes. I think we're not going to talk about it this week. I think all of this had to be working on this centurion this noble man the centurion that this guy is different because no matter how bad he's treated no matter how many insults are hurled at him we've spit in his face we've mocked him we have put this crown of thorns on him beat him on the head there kneeled down and mocked him and yet he doesn't respond in kind in any way we have never seen one look of anger from him not one angry word in fact they nail him to the cross and before darkness comes guess what he does there's like we even actually heard him pray to his father to forgive us for what we've done and we have never seen anything like this so then put yourself in their shoes and <laughs> you imagine after 3 hours in broad daylight at high noon they, they crucify him at nine. Three hours later at high noon with the bright sun up, all of a sudden, total darkness. I believe it was like what was in Exodus, a darkness that could be felt. Can you imagine those people standing there and those soldiers? Those guys were superstitious. <laughs> and they're like, this is a bit much here, I'm sure. And what's interesting is there's no conversation recorded during that entire three-hour period of darkness. None. I don't know whether any took place or not, but there's none recorded. And they were just busying themselves for the three hours previous to that, mocking the Lord, the soldiers, and the high priest, all of them. But there it is no recorded words, just this darkness, and I would say this eerie silence. And you think about it that is a death and a scene that has never been equaled before or since that death that took place there. But it was a death like none other because. We know, I'm not telling you something you don't know, but this is the death of God in the flesh. Jesus, the eternal Son of God. Think about that. Suffering for humanity. Not just suffering for humanity, suffering for rebellious humanity. You and I That's who he's on that cross suffering for. It's the great mystery of judgment. Like we've said, it's judgment, God's judgment and mercy meeting in one spot right there. Just just a tremendous thing to think about. Right. We said it's the greatest event that's ever occurred in history. But also, I'd say it's the greatest event that occurred in the life of our Lord. I mean, it kind of goes without saying. But here's the thing. This is happening, the greatest event in his life. Yet the father is silent. Now, other great events that happened in Jesus's life, the father wasn't silent, was he? When he came to be baptized by John, the father spoke from heaven and said, he gave him this words of approval. This was spoken to the Lord Jesus. You are my beloved son. The father spoke from heaven to the son at the beginning of his ministry. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then the other great event, I would say, it had to be a tremendous thing to see, the Mount of Transfiguration. And there, once again, Jesus is transfigured. The veil is temporarily taken away. His glory shines forth, shining forth. It says like the sun. I mean, the disciples, just imagine seeing that. That had to be something else. And then the Father speaks again out of heaven. And this time he speaks to the disciples. And he says, this is my beloved son. You need to listen to him. And we need to listen to him, don't we? That's a word for all of us at all times. This is my beloved son. Hear him is what he said. But here in his son's greatest agony and trial, the father is silence. Not a word from heaven. All we have is utter darkness. Not a word from the father. Eerie silence. Three hours of darkness. And at the end of that, What do we have? The Lord cries out at the end of that three hours, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And I believe Jesus truly felt forsaken. I mean, whether some will say he was, some say he just felt, I'm saying from his side, I don't think it made a difference, did it? I'm saying, I think he experienced being forsaken by God in his humanity. And I'm saying, I think you have in that with his cry why hast thou forsaken me? But he said, my God, my God. That is the greatest faith demonstrated in the Bible because he still trusted that God would hear his cry even though it seemed that God had abandoned him. That's what he's crying out, had forsaken him. And I think that is the greatest test of faith. Sometimes we've had, I've had to do that in my life several times to trust God when it doesn't seem like he is anywhere in my circumstances and I can't tangibly feel his presence. That is, that's the hardest time. And I mean, I'm sure people here have been through that at times, the dark, dark night of the soul, as they say, right? And you go through that at times, God, God kind of takes you through that. But yet we know that he is always there, don't we? He's always there with us because He's promised us, his disciples, that he said at the end of the Great Commission, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. And then we know that he said in Hebrews, he said, I will never desert you or nor ever forsake you. He says, I'll never desert you. Your mate might desert you. Your friends might desert you. But he says, I'll never do that. I'm not like that. Amen. That's that's a comforting thing to know. And he's been there. Right. But this this whole scene of the crucifixion, I think it's it's something that the more for me anyways. I mean, when you it's just something you got to just stop and think about what all's going on here. Who's being crucified? What's taking place? What he's going through on our behalf? And not just it's easy just to read through it. or, But the more you think about it and we have read through it here now for several weeks and talked about it. It tends to do, do a work on you, I think, doesn't it? Is that, Has that happened for you guys? It's happened that way for me. It just tends to melt your heart, and it, from my own words, it's just like becomes a wonder. It just kind of has opened up more to me, like Caleb saying, "You study things, and just God just starts opening things up to you that sometimes it's hard to put into words." And I like I read this what Spurgeon said, and I like this. He said, "The more you think of the death of the Son of God, the more you will be amazed at it that the divine Lord." even though veiled in mortal flesh, should condescend to be subject to the power of death. So as to bow his head on the cross and submit to being laid in the tomb, he said it's one of the greatest mysteries that God would do that. Spurgeon talked about the cross. He, ne- he always talked about the cross. He never got over what the Lord came down and did for him. He always talked about that, and I think that's good. And I just think, as he said many times, you read much of Spurgeon, and you've got a hard heart, you feel like, I just don't have anything towards the Lord. He says, that's the remedy, is to gaze and meditate on the cross. That's the remedy for a cold heart, because like I said, it will melt you. And that's how repentance comes, when you see what he did there for you, right? Right? So it brings repentance. But what I want to look at tonight is that when Jesus finally died, look what it says in verse 37. It says, and Jesus cried. He hung for six hours and it says he cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. So, you know, what's unusual about that is crucified men before they died, they had no strength, no voice. They they could barely speak because it was a slow suffocation. And yet he, it says, is crying out with a loud voice. John's Gospel is the only one, I think, that gives what that cry was. And what did he cry out? It is finished. It is finished. And then it says, good old King James, he gave up the ghost. <laughs> I don't think I'd say that in a sermon I preach at somebody's funeral. Or what the Greek really says, it says he breathed his last. Or we would use the word ex, out of, spired. He's out of breath. He's, he's dead, in other words, is really what it's saying gave up the ghost here's what what i want to say when he finally died when he did die heaven was no more silent so even though we don't have the father's voice being heard i would say the father spoke loud and loud and clear and spoke in supernatural power so when he died and breathed his last. In Matthew's account, he tells us, what the other ones don't, that there was an earthquake that took place at that. I'm thinking, again, we're back to the Roman soldiers. These guys had to be like, what in the world? Utter darkness? This man has the strength to say what he says, dies in dignity the way he is, and then this earthquake happens. The earthquake was so great that it said rocks, not little little rocks, big rocks, split in half came asunder. It also says tombs were opened up. Now, not just any tombs. You know whose tombs they were? They were tombs of saints. And it said, they did not, though, come out of those tombs. They didn't come out of those tombs until after the resurrection. But their graves were open then. They didn't come out of those tombs until after the resurrection. That's what the Word says. But I think the sign that we're going to talk about t- tonight that spoke the loudest occurred in the temple now the priest would have been the ones that would have witnessed it and what do we read it's right there in mark verse 38 the veil it's a heavy curtain of the temple was rent into and where did the rending stop from top to bottom uh that temple in the temple it would have been 60 feet high 30 feet wide and i study these people anybody want to guess how thick it was so it wasn't like my shirt or even my coat or some linen, sheet. it wasn't just some little thin sheet hanging up there. They estimate that, 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 the, that the curtain, the veil, was four inches thick. So, so the point of all of that is 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, four inches thick, it wasn't just something thing that just accidentally tore. It's not something a man could have torn. Not only that, but guess what? It's 60 feet high and it tore from top to bottom it tore from above because God tore it now, whether he used an angel or did it with his own hands I don't know but that was the hand of God that did that and so when he died the veil was ripped in half and God was sending a message he was speaking and I think through that I think he was sending more than one message even so you know, when the veil was torn in two, something was destroyed when that happened. But also, something that was previously hidden became revealed, didn't it? So previously, God's glory, nobody saw it, did they? Not even the high priest, because he had to enter in. One of the things he entered in with was he had to take blood with him. You, you do not go into God's presence without blood. None of us do. But he had to take blood with him, but he also had to take incense and the smoke, we'll see, we'll look at it here in a minute, was to shield his eyes. But through Jesus' death, the death of Jesus, guess what happens now? His glory that was veiled is now seen. So we know 2 Corinthians 3, it says that there is a veil over the minds and the hearts of the Israelites. And I would say any unbeliever. They, they have a veil over their heart. But it also says, says this about the Israelites. When the Old Testament's read, they don't understand it. It says, even unto this day, Paul wrote, when Moses is read, it says there's a veil upon their heart. But listen, he goes on to say and says, that veil is done away in Christ. And that's what this is pointing to, the veil, of te- that veil over the heart, which is symbolized by that veil at the temple. It says it is done away in Christ, torn in two. And when that happened, like I said, that veil is removed from the hearts of those that believe and so we're saying something is revealed. You go on and read in Second Corinthians in chapter 4, it says, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? In the face of Jesus Christ. So I'm saying the veil was rent to now the glory of His light and we see it in the face of Jesus Christ can be seen by everybody. It's visible to all. And what is that glory? We now understand through Jesus and what He did on the cross and how he, that is God's grace and holy love demonstrated that it had never been seen before. Didn't quite have that all put together, but it's there right now. and can be seen by all and experienced by all, not just a high priest once a year. A second message I think there is that God's glory is no longer confined to just one location of stone in Jerusalem, right? It can break forth. We're saying it unveils something. Now His glory can break forth upon the whole earth. Isn't that what happened? It's available to all of humanity. No longer confined, like I said, to one room that a priest enters into once a year, now, His glory, because it's not subject to just being there, it can be experienced, and His presence can be experienced in Africa, in Guatemala, in China, or in Wadi, of all places. It's like, why would His glory want to appear there? I don't know, but that's, I believe it, it can and does, right? <laughs> I'm just joking. I'd have said Baghdad, but you would have thought that was another country over somewhere else, right? So it a Wadi. <laughs> But remember what we talked about this in John 4 what Jesus told the woman at the well he says woman believe me the hour comes and he's talking we talked about that, that he's talking about his crucifixion the hour comes when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet in Jerusalem worship the father but the hour comes and now is when true worship, worshipers shall worship the father in spirit and in truth and he says the father seeks such to worship him because God is spirit he can't be confined to a building we all know that right and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth and I'm saying I for one am glad that I don't have to go all the way over to Israel and Jerusalem I've been there I love the place but I don't have to go all the way over there to get into the presence of God amen I'll do it right here in Kentucky beautiful old Kentucky or Michigan either way it works either way right So the the heavy curtain has been torn so His glory can spread out over the whole earth. A third message I think He's sending in destroying the veil is that the Old Testament sacrificial system is now obsolete, no longer necessary. So the temple and all of its sacrifices, the altars and rituals, everything that went along with it will be destroyed that's the signal God's sending it literally would be destroyed and Jesus predicted that if you remember back in Mark 13 he said there shall not be left one stone that will stand upon another and that literally was fulfilled that temple no longer existed we all know in 70 AD under Titus the Roman came in there and destroyed it all that all that that temple represented it doesn't have to stand anymore has been fulfilled in Christ no longer needed so if you would put something there um, in Mark well, actually, you don't even need to put anything there. I don't know that I'm coming back to that other than to, to mention it. But if you would turn over to Hebrews 9, which is, we'll spend some time here in Hebrews. Talking about the temple. So Hebrews chapter 9. So what we read in Hebrews 9, we'll look in the first 14 verses. It says, Then verily the first covenant also had ordinances of a divine service and worldly sanctuary, for there was a tabernacle, for there was a tabernacle made the first, wherein was the candlestick, the table, the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after that the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer, the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with gold. "...wherein was the golden pot that had manna, Aaron's rod that budded in the tables of the covenant. And over it the cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone, once, every year, not without blood, "...which He offered for Himself and for the heirs of the people. The Holy Ghost thus signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make Him that did the service perfect, as pertaining to the conscience." which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. Verse 11 says, But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, Having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So here I just drew this kind of crude diagram. Of What the tabernacle would have been they had a seven-foot wall that surrounded it. This was always East on the east side so the people walking in were facing the west and This would have been the brazen altar, which is they would have brought their sacrifices in And met the priest there and they would have done their sacrifices and this would have been the tabernacle this would be the first tabernacle they talked about where the priests would go in and they were the only ones in there allowed to do that service. And this would have been the Holy of Holies and there was the veil that only the whole high priest could go into. Interesting, this Holy of Holies was a perfect cube. 15 by 15 by 15 by 15. However all that worked. It was all 15 whatever. It was 15 feet, inches, centimeters, I don't know. But it was a perfect cube. Which... Interestingly enough, the new Jerusalem that's talked about in Revelation 20 is going to be the new heavens and the new earth, which is described there. Now, this is a whole study in and of itself. where I'm not even going to get into it at all tonight, but it is a perfect cube also. So they're saying that, I've read books where they're saying that holy of holies points to, with all the, the plants, it points to the perfect Eden, what Eden was supposed to be, which we will have in Revelation 20. Which is the tabernacle, but anyways, it's that's what we have there, and it says that Jesus, by His own blood, entered not into this tabernacle, but into the real holy of holies, the actual holy of holies that that represented. And here's the thing: since we are united to Him, guess what? We have this is what we're talking about in Mark. That that veil was rent. We have, through him, it it was his flesh that was rent, and through that now, we have direct access, like he did, to the Father. Because of only, because of his blood, we enter by his blood and our union with him. The true Holy of Holies. And I'm saying, that is, this is an understatement of understatements, that is no small thing. No small thing at all. And that brings me to... The fourth message that I think that the veil being torn represents and that that is the barrier that was there between God and man has been torn away, has been torn asunder. And any believer can have access to the presence of God. And so what are we talking about with that when we say any believer can have access to the presence of God? We're talking about prayer, aren't we? That's what we're talking about. That's what prayer is all about. And I would say if there's ever been a period that I've seen in my time as a Christian where prayer is vital, it is now. Because it is through prayer that we're going to have the strength, the power, and the wisdom to know how to navigate ourselves through these times that are coming. Because I'm saying we're up against spiritual forces and I'm saying deceiving spirits that are as subtle as I've ever seen them in so many ways. We're talking about this last night with some brothers. I mean, it is the way it is. So we're going to need the wisdom of God, his presence, and we're going to need his strength to overcome these spiritual forces that are seeking to get us off the path and onto the paths of destruction. Because it's everywhere. It's, a, it's the spirit of this world that is just permeates everything. And like, they, like a man said one time, those spirits like that and those spirits of deceptions and this whole wrong way of thinking doesn't stop at the church's door. It comes in and starts affecting churches and their outlook on God and how we relate to Him and His holiness and all of that. And it's bad. It's more subtle and about as bad, I think, as I've ever seen it. So I think we need to Understand and pay attention to what's being said tonight as far as hindrances and how to overcome them in our prayer life. Because doctrine, people say, I don't want to hear doctrine. Well, I'll tell you, doctrine is what helps you pray and overcome the things that come against you, teaching, understanding how things work. It really is. So the other thing I'm saying, prayer's vital. And where else are, I mean, you know, the devil doesn't fight me nearly as hard to read my Bible as he does when I get on my knees. You know why? Because he knows he can keep you off your knees. He'll let you read your Bible till you're blue in the face. Or fellowship or talk spiritual. He doesn't care about all that. But he keeps you off your knees. He's got you. He does. It's just a matter of time. And so I'm saying it's crucial. He keep you from drawing nigh to God. He's got you. So look what it says over here in chapter 10. We read some in chapter 9, but look what it says. And I think this relates directly to what we read in Mark. And and whoever the writer of Hebrews is, whether it's Paul or someone else, but the writer says, "...having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which He has consecrated for us." Here it says, "...through the veil, that is to say, His flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, He says, "...let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith." having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So, I think he's talking about prayer there. And why is prayer hard? Because I'm going to say, true prayer, I'm talking about true prayer, is always hard. It really is. (laughs) For a lot of reasons, there are a lot of obstacles to prayer. And some of them, he's... What he's doing, he's telling you some of those obstacles and giving you ways to overcome it right here in those few verses that we just read. And the first obstacle we need to see is this whole thing of coming into that holy of holies and that veil and that no one's allowed in there. The first obstacle is that when we go to pray, we understand when we're really serious about it that we're coming into the presence of a holy God. It's right there in verse 19. He says, having therefore brother in boldness, but he says to enter in to the holiest, to enter into the holiest, entering into the holy of holies. And do we realize what we're doing when we say that? You know, if you ever read Leviticus 16, Leviticus 16 is what tells us about the day of atonement. And you think the high priest comes in there? That was a tremendous day in the whole life of Israel. That was a tremendous day. And He alone, the high priest alone, was the only one permitted to go in there. Everyone else is, you better stay away from there. He is the only one. And all the people could do, just like when Moses was up on top of that mountain, and the Lord says, You keep him away because of his holiness. And all the people could do was stand back and watch him go in there on their behalf in fear and trembling. That's what it was. They wouldn't go, they wouldn't dare go near the place. And put yourself in the place, we're talking about entering into the holiest. So you put yourself in the place of the high priest. So he pulls back the veil and walks in, and you think about what he would have been walking into. He is suddenly in a different atmosphere than anywhere else on earth, anywhere else in the world, because he's walking into the living presence of God, God, a holy God, yeah, that presence would have filled that room, and the only thing that kept the priest alive, like I said, was he had the he had blood with him that he had offered. He had to go through a lot to go into there. He didn't just walk in there any old way, because he had to he had to clean himself ritually, clean himself. He had to wear the proper clothing. He had to sacrifice an animal, take the blood in there, and he had to have the incense, or it'd have been all over for him. So, if you would. Put something Now, do put something there in Hebrews 9, and if you would, turn back to, because we're going to keep coming back to Hebrews 9, but turn back to Leviticus 16. I'm just not going to read the whole chapter, but I want to look at the couple verses in it to make a point about entering into the holy of holies. So look what it says in Leviticus 16, beginning in verse 1. It says, and the Lord spake unto Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they offered before the Lord and died. And the Lord said unto Moses, speak unto Aaron thy brother that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat which is upon the ark that he die not for I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. Now that's Significant, he hadn't just, you know, you have to go back about six chapters. I believe it's chapter 10, Leviticus 10, when verse 1 it says, The Lord spake unto Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. You know what happened there. It said they offered up strange fire before the Lord, and it says that the fire of the Lord came out, and it uses it says, He devoured them. They died. Because they didn't do it, said so they didn't do what he commanded. And God is saying, you all are going to learn to respect my holiness. He wouldn't even let Aaron, he says, you're not going to rend your clothes, you're not going to mourn. They're, they're going to be carried out and because it's going to be shown what they did was wrong. That my holiness and my honor goes above everything else, even your feelings, Aaron. Oh, that's hard. That had to be really hard on Aaron. But that's what he says here. He's saying the context of this day of atonement. It's when, after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they offered themselves before the Lord and died, you think Aaron's not like carefully listening to everything Moses is telling him that he needs to do? <laughs> I would be. You tell me. You tell me exactly what I need to do, and that is. Ex- I'm all ears. That's exactly what I will do, because there was a holy respect and fear for God. And look what he adds down there without reading everything in verses 12 and 13. And Moses. God tells Moses this is what Aaron should do. He shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from off the altar before the Lord and his hands full of sweet incense beaten small and bring it within the veil and he shall put the incense upon the fire before the Lord that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is as upon the testimony. And if he doesn't do that, what's going to happen to him? He's going to die. He says that he die not. So it's a serious thing for them to come before the Lord, right? So he's telling everyone and teaching all of us, isn't he? Moses, Aaron, and all the people that the most impressive thing that a person could do is to do what? Is to come into the presence of the living God, to come into his presence and live. And so we realize, I think in our hearts, we kind of know that that in a sense can be an obstacle. I'm not saying it is now. But it was then. I'm saying in this understanding that God is holy and we have a sense of that, right? You know, Psalm 24, the psalmist asks, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? It's not going to be just anybody, is it? See, It says, He that has clean hands and a pure heart. But how does that happen? We don't do that to ourselves, do we? We're back to Jesus, His righteousness, His blood. His spirit changing us, changing us from the inside out, right? That's how it happens. So coming into God's presence, trying to make the point is no small thing because we need to remember that the greater the person you talk to, now today's society, youth talk to adults like they're whatever. I mean, they'll talk to the president like he's a whatever. But back in the day... It used to be the, the more impressive or the more prestigious or the more honorable the person was, you were you were kind of in awe to be even asked to speak to them or them speaking to you, right? And so just take that time's infinity with God Almighty. So it's no small thing for them to come into His presence and God is trying to, to get that through to all of us in a way. And the other thing that could be a hindrance to, uh, that we have if you go, well you don't need to go back, but It it kept talking about the the blood has to cleanse our conscience. Did you catch that? I mean, we've read that three times between chapter 9 and chapter 10. Because as soon, maybe it's just me, but as soon as I kneel down to pray, then your conscience start talking to you about you did this, you did that, you said this, you shouldn't have thought that, or you should have done this. Things that you've done, things that you didn't do, right? And we've got to deal with that, right? Back in in what we were looking at in chapter 10, he says we have to have our conscience sprinkled, our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. And the only way to deal with your conscience is not to argue with it or try to suppress it, but you just have to agree with it and and confess your sins, right? Because that's the only way David was able to deal with his conscience. He tried to suppress and go on with all that stuff he had done, and it wasn't working out well for him at all. You know, I remember one time hearing about a one of those nazi generals or whoever that was involved in executing all these jews and he somehow had made it to south america and lived a long time and seemed to be happy or whatever all else and one of those guys one of those jewish guys trapped him down and and had a meeting with him and confronted him with what he had done and he couldn't his conscience just came alive again and the guy just blew up just blew up because his conscience is bothering him you can't get away from it is the point We've got to deal with it. And so look at Psalm, if you would, look at Psalm 32. And we'll see a case of that where David, I'm saying, we've got, to, we've got to deal with our conscience so we can pray. In Psalm 32, David writes this, he says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputes not iniquity So he doesn't say he didn't do it, but that God doesn't charge it to his account. Blessed is that man, right? In whose spirit there is no guile. Because here's what he said when he tried to suppress his conscience. When I kept silence, he says, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me and my moisture is turned into the drought of summer. Until, verse 5, I acknowledge my sin unto thee and mine iniquity He says, I didn't hide it any longer, have I not hid? I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. And when he did that, what had happened? He says, you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. And David goes on to say, therefore, or for this, shall everyone that is godly pray unto thee in a time when you may be found. And surely then the floods of great waters they won't come nigh unto Him. I'm saying we've got to keep our conscience clean and go before the Lord, confess our sins, and then we can have confidence. He's saying the great floods come, the great problems come. God will be there to help us out. We can have that confidence that that will happen. So that's two obstacles. The third one I want to talk about is it talks about having your body washed with clean water. And it's, I think what he's referring to there is just that overall feeling that you're polluted polluted. And you know, when David and fell into the sins of adultery and murder with Bathsheba, they were terrible sins. But it wasn't just those sins, those individual sins that he did that bothered him. What bothered him was the fact that he had those desires in himself. So it was deeper for him than just the actual sins that he committed, the actual acts. It was his inward affections that he wanted to have changed. He did. So you're in Psalm 32. Just turn over a couple more to Psalm 51. And look what it says there. So Psalm 51, beginning in verse 6, David says, behold, he says, you want truth where? In the inward parts and in the hidden part you shall make me to know wisdom. And so he's talking about his inside here. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me, he says, I'll be whiter than snow. Make me then to hear joy and gladness that the bones which you have broken may rejoice. He says, hide not thy face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. And we sing this, don't we? Create in me a clean heart. He wants to be clean on the inside, not just forgiven for what he's done outwardly, but create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence and take not Thy Holy Spirit from me. That's what he's saying there. So, those are the obstacles, I would say, but that we have to deal with a lot of times when we go to pray. At least I do. <laughs> Maybe I'm a freak of nature. I don't know. But, you know, the, that whole thing about that God is a holy and awesome being, and we realize that we fall short. Our consciences are there to remind us all the ways that we fall short and they accuse us, and we just have this sense that our desires just aren't what they ought to be. Now, am I the only one that has to deal with that kind of stuff when you pray? <laughs> That's what we got to. But we go back to Hebrews 10, you go back to that, and he's telling us here though, he's saying none of that stuff should, should be a problem in this sense. He says, having therefore, verse 19... Brethren, boldness. He's saying, you don't have to hang back. Boldness to enter into the holiest. An awesome place, but we do it how? By the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which He, Jesus, has consecrated for us through that veil that was rent. That is to say, His flesh. So the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, told the people what? You have got to keep your distance right you have to keep your distance but now what we're talking about in hebrews is what we're seeing in mark's account with the crucifixion jesus has shed his blood the veil has been rent so now the invitation from the lord is no longer it's not keep your distance is it what is he saying to all of us in here that are christians any believer what's he saying come come the barrier has been removed forever you know, they didn't they didn't sew the veil back up and roll it up so they could hang it up again. So it's been rent forever. That obstacle has been removed forever. God has torn the veil and he said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. And he says, not only come, but you can come boldly. He told us that back in Hebrews chapter four you got problems, you're struggling. Whatever he says, let us therefore, we have this faithful and merciful high priest that's been through what we've been through. Come therefore, he says boldly, unto the throne of grace that we may find grace to help in time of need. So I'm saying God has made a way for us to overcome all the obstacles to prayer. He says prayer, it should be done how? He says come, look at verse 19, come therefore brethren having boldness to enter and then he says in verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. How is that possible to have boldness and full assurance? Draw near first of all with, he says, a true heart. And what does that mean, a true heart? That means sincere, honest hearts. Hearts, like I said, we talked about with David. Hearts, A sincere heart, a true honest heart is a heart that's not trying to hide anything from the Lord, nothing. And why? Because he tells us, Psalm 66, if I regard iniquity in my heart, what does he say? Forget praying. He says, the Lord will not hear me. Does he say if you committed a sin, forget it? No, but he says if you're trying to hide it, you regard it, you're hiding it. You don't have an honest and true heart. We have to get it out because here's the thing. God does know our hearts, doesn't He? Just turn back. We're going to go back to that chapter 4. For me, it's just one page turn. Go back to Hebrews 4, verses 12 to 13, and look what it says. It says right there, it says, For the Word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and the Word of God Himself is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Because verse 13, he goes on to say, neither is there any creature, that's any of us, that is not manifest. It's not open. Our whole lives are an open book to the Lord in His sight. All things are naked and opened unto the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. So we have to have hearts, we're saying, that aren't condemning us. That's why He says we need to come before Him with an honest heart, right? That's If we want to enjoy this access that He's provided for us, freely provided through the rent veil, we have to make sure that we've got our hearts open before Him, we've confessed any sin, and we've repented of anything that He's dealing with us about, don't we? I mean, 1 John 3 says, If our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart. He knows all things. Beloved, if our hearts condemn us, not then... We have confidence towards God and whatsoever we ask, back to prayer, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. But we're back to the blood, though, right? I'm saying we can have that heart that doesn't condemn us if you've missed it. And all of us probably missed it today in some way. Right. But what do we need to do? We just looked at it with David and we look at it in 1 John 1, 1.9. If we confess our sins, then He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And we're back to that inward cleansing. And that blood of Jesus will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He'll cleanse us from the inside out. Amen? And here's the thing. Like I said, we repent confess our sins, we're promised, aren't we, that the blood of Jesus will forgive us, cleanse us, and we're back, that's our access to God, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, give us that access. Because that's what it's telling us there in Hebrews 10, that we having therefore, brethren, boldness, our boldness to enter into the holies is through what? What does it say there at the end of verse 19? By the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of the Old Testament types pointed to blood because a Jew never approached God, the presence of God, without blood. You even have that all with Abraham, David, all the Old Testament saints. They had their blood sacrifices they would use to approach God. That's just the way it is. The Bible is a book of blood. (laughs) It's a book of blood. And it talks there about, it says that verse 20, that that is a new and living way. That new and living way, which he said is through the rent veil of Jesus' flesh and His blood. It's new and living. It's not old and a ritual, the dead letter. Like I experienced as a young man growing up for however many years, 18 years, in the Catholic church. Now I just went Saturday. My brother's wife was Catholic. I went to a Catholic funeral, which when you go, if you haven't been to one, You'll, you get to experience a full Catholic Mass. And I'm saying, I don't want to disparage. A lot of those people are sincere. They mean well. That's all they've known growing up. They don't know anything else. But, I mean, I'm back. Like, this is still just as old and dead and stale as it was when I grew up as a kid. I recognize that as a kid. There is no life there. And they still have the high priest. They still have their incense, because I got smothered with it. Incense, robes, their daily sacrifices. (laughs) I'm saying God's grace delivered me from that. And we're saying He's presenting to us not that. That's like trying to bring back the Old Testament system. He's saying, no, that's done away with. This is a new, a fresh, and a living way is what God's saying. And the veil kept us from God's presence before, didn't it? It had to be rent, which is our flesh, our sinful nature under the power of sin. And so when his flesh, he represented us in that way, when he was torn and his flesh was torn and crucified and when he bled, that was our old man. It was dealt with, taken away. And now we can enter into God's presence in a new and living way. Because we were buried with him, weren't we? crucified, died, and buried with Him. So why? That's what baptism was all about, that we just, so that we can do what? Walk in, we're raised to walk in newness of life. And that includes our relationship with the Lord. It's not some, shouldn't be some dry dead going into the Holy of Holies. How could that be dry and dead and stale in a ritual? Really entering into God's presence, right? He set us free. The law of the Spirit of life. In Christ, Jesus has set us free from the law which we were under before of sin and death. He's made a new and living way. And that's the other thing is that is how we can no longer we no longer have to be hindered by our conscience. The death of Jesus and the blood is the answer. That's what it says in verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. And look what it says back in chapter 9 verses 13 and 14, it says, for if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctified to the puring of the flesh, it says how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, the blood of Christ will do what? It will purge your and my conscience. So what, what is this with The devil speaks to us, our conscience speaks to us, he'll speak to us through our conscience. It'll accuse us of sins that we've committed. Maybe today, maybe last week, it could be sins from long ago. And our conscience is designed to tell us that we are guilty. You are guilty and you deserve punishment. So it's like your conscience is there to tell you, Christian or not, that you just told a half lie to protect your pride and that was wrong and you're guilty and the point is if you did it don't argue with your conscience (laughs) like I said you're never going to convince your conscience all you're going to do is harden it or deaden it and that's dangerous you know you don't want to do that that's not good instead if your conscience is telling you that and you know what it's saying is true then just agree with it and repent and then when you do that and ask the Lord to put it under the blood of Jesus to forgive you, then you tell your conscience, hey, I am no longer guilty because my sin has been punished. You're, you're telling me my sin should be punished. It has been punished. It was punished by my, on my substitute on the cross. It really has been dealt with. And I don't need to think about it anymore. And put it behind you. God in His grace has forgiven me and my access is restored. I have access to Him. That's what it's telling us here. That's what we're reading about, right? So we always need to keep our sins confessed and go to the blood for cleansing. That's our only plea. Like the song we sing, this is all my hope and peace, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness, nothing but the blood of Jesus. So what he's saying here is, with a clear conscience, with a sincere heart and a body washed in pure water. It's the blood again, right? We can approach, we can uh, draw nigh, we can approach the presence of God. That's what he's telling us here through all this, right? That's what that rent veil represents. And that's what the old saints would write about in their hymns, that they enjoyed that communion. And we all should enjoy it. Fanny Crosby, great hymn writer. She wrote to him, and that's what it's about. It's taken from this passage here in Hebrews 10. That she was able to enjoy communion with God because of her relationship to the blood of Jesus, what it brought her. And this one line said this, Oh, the pure delight of a single hour that before thy throne I spend. And when I kneel in prayer, and with thee my God, I commune as friend with friend. And the Course, you probably have heard the Course, draw me nearer, nearer nearer blessed Lord to the cross where thou hast died draw me nearer 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 blessed Lord to thy precious bleeding side because that through the blood that is where our access comes but that is where we have our communion always with the blood amen and his death and you know Spurgeon said this he said the veil's been rent The veil's been rent, and we can look into the holy of holies. But he says, why content yourself with just looking? Just looking in there. He says, we must boldly enter. That's what we're invited to do, right? And overcome the obstacles in our way, because the point is that once we enter into God's presence, how really, if we do that, how can we ever be the same? If we're in His presence like that, we wouldn't be the same. Like I said, that high priest Back to like what I said earlier, he entered the veil, let it fall behind him, and he would have been overwhelmed by a sense of the presence of God in there. He would have been in there all alone, shut in, cut off from the world, no one with him. It would have just been him and God Almighty in there. And that's what we're invited to. Through his blood, we can come into his presence boldly to where it is just us and him. We can experience that. I mean, think about how awe-inspiring that would have been for that priest to go in there. And we can do that ourselves. We're all invited now. It's not just one special person. It's all of us, right? That's the invitation and promise that God has given us. That's what we're reading about tonight. So I'm saying, you don't like the way I preach? Good. Let's just let God's Word challenge us all tonight. Listen to what his word is saying, okay? That's what his Word's saying. And let's hear his voice say to us, the veil has been torn in two. Let him say that to you. Come, draw near to me with the full assurance of faith and boldly enter into my presence through the blood of my son. Let him speak that to all of us that are here and just let your conscience be at peace. Now, if you're not willing to repent of something, he's dealing with You've got a whole other problem. But we're, I, I believe I'm speaking to people that are wanting to walk with the Lord. And, and yeah, we miss it. But that's different than saying I'm going to be just staying in no known sin. I'm not going to deal with it. Just missing it. So not missing it doesn't disqualify you from this, okay? That's what we're talking about. We can have our conscience cleansed by the blood. And let it be at peace because God says, I want you to come. I want to help. He says, I am a very... Present help in time of trouble. Amen. Amen. And that's what he's inviting us to. The veil has been rent for all time for believers. He's not going to hang it back up. Amen. Amen. Well, let's pray. And Father, we just thank you once again, Lord. All the different aspects, the benefits from the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ and this one great benefit, Lord, this is. Why we have been created is to enjoy your presence and fellowship with you. And we had been blocked from that before. But through the sacrifice, the great sacrifice that you made on the cross, that we now have access back to your presence, that we can communion with you. You can talk with us. We can talk to you. We can give you our burdens, our problems, our trials, and that you will relieve us of those, Lord. And we just thank you for that. I just ask you'll speak to all of us and that you'll help us, Lord, to draw nigh to you in prayer and to keep our conscience clean and not let the obstacles that are set before us keep us from your presence and that we'll use what you've given us, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and the confession of our sin that we can maintain that communion and fellowship with you, that we can be strengthened, Lord. I ask you'll strengthen us and give us all wisdom to walk in your ways and to keep us from deception. Keep us from the evil one, and I just thank you that you'll do that for us here in Jesus' name. Amen.